Welcome to the 22nd meeting of Junto Club. On this episode, we talk briefly about Pet Rocks coming back around and getting kids back to work before diving into Karl Marx, communism, and socialism. For any questions, comments, or if you'd like to tell us what we got wrong, email juntoclubpodcast at gmail.com. This is Junto Club. Junto Club. All right, welcome to the 22nd meeting of the Junto Club. Uh, this is inspired by Benjamin Franklin. He had created the Junto Club back in the day to uh, as a club for mutual improvement, where members would come and discuss philosophy, business, science, politics, and other issues of the day. So we're sort of trying to follow that trend, uh, you know, coming together and talking about these various topics that interest us and try to learn a little bit more kind of take turns sharing things, occasionally bringing on guests to talk about topics they have more knowledge in. Uh, Yeah, and today we're going to be talking about Marxism, socialism as the predominant topic. Uh, But before that... And why is in the best? Yeah, that's right. And uh, before that, Shu always brings in one Benjamin Franklin quote, though, to start us off. All right, cool. Today's quote is, uh, let me see, quote, silks and satins. Scarlet and velvets have put out the kitchen fire, end quote, by Benjamin Franklin. What does that mean? Read it one more time. Sorry, I was sharing the video. Sure. Silks <laughs> and satins, scarlet and velvets have put out the kitchen fire. Assuming silks and satins, is, are, are they not in the clothes, like cloth, clothing thing? Right. Well, specific- well, specifically, they're expensive material, right? I assume that's important. Mm. So I think, what about- I think what I was trying to say, I think scarlet and violet are like, or velvet's also an expensive material, right? Maybe mm. scarlet was an expensive color back in the day. I think the theme here is using expensive things to put out a fire, which would probably destroy them, right? So I think it's saying something about, you know, I guess in an emergency or under pressure, you know, these kind of fancy things are going to get used up or destroyed anyway. I'm not sure if that's saying they're not as valuable as we think. Hmm. That's the direction I was taking it. Yeah. Like in an emergency situation, you sort of do what you have to do. So yeah, maybe that's, that's probably more the life lesson to come out of it. Hmm. What, what is velvet? Like a, type of material i guess okay I and scarlet i thought scarlet is more like a color but not a material too well no no i think matt's right it's a well it's a color right the scarlet letter like she had a like red yeah and that's what i thought of when i thought thought about it like color but it's apparently it's not back in the day scarlet might have been expensive because there were some colors that were much more expensive to get mm. uh mm-hmm. so that seems like a likely guess to go with the theme of the other things, but mm, yeah, because velvet is almost like I know. Only thing I heard before is now velvet cake, right? So mm. <laughs> no, I mean, like, weren't like stuffed animals or something made out of velvet? Like, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a material though. Okay, 
Okay, okay. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure this quote has a larger context, but this is just not a single quote, so it's hard to, and it's for me personally to understand that what, what the hell he was talking about. Yeah, no, I mean, I think about it. It's like people will sometimes have, like, I, I think my parents, when they first got married, had, like, fancy towels or something. Or maybe mm. my dad's mom had fancy towels, and it was like, you know, like, stuff got spilled all over the ground, and, like, you know, they just, like, ran and grabbed, like, whatever they could find, which was the fancy towels, you know, and mm. mopped off stuff, and it's like, you know, it's... Like in the moment, you like they didn't think about it, but it sort of destroyed the towels because they were like white towels. So, so okay, okay, fancy towels don't matter that much. <clears throat> when there's a fire, <laughs> when there's a fire, the fancy towels don't matter that much. The fire teaches you what's really important. That's <laughs> a good way to organize your life. Start a mm. fire in your kitchen. You know, yeah. see what you feel is valuable now. <laughs> Get an insurance mm. policy. <laughs> <laughs> So. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, moving on. What's uh one of the mini topics that is that from you, Matt? Yeah. So I posted this first one. It's called the Thinking Egg Two, and it is a small egg-shaped rock that looks nice, mm-hmm. uh, and it's raised half a million dollars on Indiegogo, uh, one of these Kickstarter platforms. So you know, people are selling rocks with some that they made look nice and then put some text about how holding it will help you like slow down your life and think more clearly and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, these guys, are they geniuses or is this the excess of capitalism, you know, spewing its head? <laughs> I mean, humans... That's why, that's why we need more season. <laughs> no, humans are dumb. So this, uh, this is just evidence that our society <laughs> is failing and we need more, like we need a harder lives. So how much how much do they charge per rock? A small rock, right? Yeah, so the smallest one, you can get one for 15 bucks. And then, of course, you bucks. can get packs of many for, you know, better deals if you want all the different types because they got different colors, like, you know, black or clear or other type of rock. Well, you, you forgot to mention these rocks has very good, like, mineral qualities. Like, those, like, you have some kind of natural quality that actually maybe helps you, right? Like no. crystals, right? No, <laughs> it doesn't have that, but it can look nice. And I can almost see, like, even I can kind of see the appeal of being like, oh, it does look nice. I feel like it's more a statement of how if you just make something look really classy, mm-hmm. like people just want to buy it. I guess in mm-hmm. some way it's kind of like art, just in a non-traditional form, because it's really just to look pretty. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Chinese actually, like China, we have like, this rock, but it's more like uh, shaped into a ball, like two balls. You can like rotate in your in your hands. Mm, I've seen that, those, yeah. Yeah, no, those are more for like exercising and then try to work on your hands and dexterity or any other stuff. So yeah, you know, I think they do show it like the egg shape is supposed to be nice to like feel in your hand. So it could be com- combined of like art and like a fidget spinner, right? Mm-hmm. Not like it's not like it's fidget spinner precisely, but something to fiddle with in your hand, which yeah. some people like. Uh, so right now, well, I mean, there's this notion like growing up on the beach. There's like my mom always would get like rocks smoothed by the ocean, and mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. say these are like worry stones or whatever, you know. And it's like you mm. can, you know use it essentially yes as if like a fidget spinner or something to like you know work out your anxiety on or whatever. But 
I don't know that I would pay fifteen dollars. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm talking it up, but then in the end, they are just selling rocks to people. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the pet rock fad came and gone, but these guys saw the new opportunity. <laughs> I guess right. while everything comes back, right? <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> so All right, let's move on then. Shu, you posted something. You had an article. Yeah. So recently, I think uh, last week, I think uh, apparently in the New Hampshire Libertarian Party. He they tweeted something like we should legalize trial labor, and of course, uh, like outcries ensue. So yeah. So I guess uh, what your guys what have you guys heard about it? Uh, uh, I, I have not. I looked at the article you posted. Mm. Apparently, he was saying things like, if like a sixteen year old has like already gotten a GED, they should be able to like work without having to get permission from someone or something. Mm-hmm. Things that maybe aren't so unreasonable, but did it in like a way that's obviously just to like generate controversy and outrage, right? Like, mm-hmm. and also it's like how many cases of this, you know, kids who've graduated early and then want to go work are there actually? Mm. I don't so, think it's a meaningful story. I'm going to be honest. I mean, you can start working part-time at like 14 or something, right? Or 13. Yeah. But you need like parent, apparently, permission. parent and maybe even school permission. It seems like uh, what the article is saying. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I didn't realize you needed permission from your school. I thought like 14, it was like basically if your parents said okay, and it was like not more than, you know, whatever, 20, 30 hours a week. It was okay. So I, mean, I guess libertarians hate kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, they just want kids to be able to fulfill their full potential, which is mm. by working menial jobs. Mm. Actually, I mean, personally, for me, I feel like actually maybe you don't need to legalize it, but maybe, but maybe you, maybe you should not like ban it in the first first place. I mean, this is America; you don't really need to make it illegal, right? Well, back in the day, there were like, you know, like a hundred plus years ago, there were like 12 year olds who were working full-time jobs. So this was a thing in Mm -hmm. the past. I think it's a little bit Mm -hmm. archaic now. Like, Mm -hmm. does it really apply to what our current society is? You know, probably not, but maybe it avoids the occasional edge case of like abusive parents sending their 14 year old to like work Mm full-time a lot more than they should be instead of, you know, focusing on school because they just want the paycheck. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of Chinese families, like immigrants, right? When they have restaurants, they always have their kids. Maybe when they are ten, you know, twelve, and and just have them start helping out in the restaurant, right? So, yeah. so it's, they already do stuff like that. So that's true. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I think in the Industrial Revolution, there's horror stories of you know kids getting caught in looms and stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> is 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 that is that why is that how Marx? Karl Marx started Marxism because because he was uh, exploited in the labor market. Karl Marx was the son of a wealthy people who of didn't work for a long time. I'm not. <laughs> it's so it's a little on the nose when you read about his personal life and you're like, oh, really? oh, he grew up rich and like didn't work for a long time and like his parents had to cut him off eventually mm-hmm. because he wouldn't get like a job. But I'm not. I'm not going to try to attack his personal life too much because you know it's the ideas that are important. But it's kind of funny when you read his personal <laughs> life. You're like, wow, this is like every stereotype of like uh-huh. modern day socialists. But all right. All right, then let's let's get into an idea a bit more. Then, all right, Matt, Matt, you can take it away. Then, okay, so I'll try to not talk too long, but I'm going to give you know a summary. And first, I'm going to do my best to describe it 
in a way that sounds good. Like I'm going to give a genuine attempt to argue for it in a relatively simple way. Like, obviously this is a complex topic. Marx wrote a lot. Um, and we're not, we don't want to talk here for hours and then I'll point out what I think are some of the major issues with it. But mm. okay. So, so the first, the, the very core, like if you had to give a one sentence definition of socialism or Marxism, um, it would be worker ownership of the means of production. So means of production, things like factories, that's like the prototypical example. Um, and the idea is right now, capitalists are like business owners, people who own the capital, that being capitalists are the ones who own it and thus like extract the profits from having it while workers just provide the labor. Hmm. Um, so sometimes they'll say uh, abolish private property and what they mean in context is not just like any private property, but like private capital, private property for production. It's not like you couldn't have, you know, your personal shoes or whatever. Um, so the idea is basically an important, the concept is the labor theory of value. So Marx thinks that all value comes from labor. So obviously if you imagine you're produ- want to make something, right. You want to make a widget in a factory. You need laborers, at least right now, pre super robots. Um, you need, laborers and then you need like the factory machines and tools and stuff and then you need the materials but he'd trace everything back to labor so the material whether it's like wood or ore that was mined or collected by workers so that was like labor was what created that in the first place um and similar with the capital the machines or the tools or whatever was also made by laborers so he would say everything trade all value comes from labor and the value of an item is the amount of socially necessary labor. So how much labor actually is needed to actually produce it. And what capitalists do is by not providing any labor, just owning something, they, um, they, they don't provide any of the value for the things that are produced and extend And instead they extract surplus value. So workers combine all their labor when they're producing something and create something with value. And then the capitalist pays the workers less than the value of that item and extracts the rest a surplus value. So that's what they get as their profit and the workers get less. So it's considered exploitation because they're not getting the full value of their labor. And then, you know, a socialist view, if laborers did get the full value, um, capitalists wouldn't have anything. So, you know, the way they view it is they say capitalists will just owning something. You're not doing anything if you just own it. Right. Which is, is true. Um, so this actually remind, this remind me of like, a lot of people are talking about Uber drivers. So Uber drivers, right? For Uber, they own the Uber, and they own the share of the company, right? They, mm. The founders and the people, and they, on the investor, and they own the company. And whereas and they, and the Uber and the drivers, they are just providing labor. They don't really own the company. They just provide the value, like labor, and then give the value back to the company, right? And that's another way of looking at it. And it's, in a, and it's, and it's what you're talking about in the beginning, and the ownership of like the means of production, right? So that's why, yeah. And so that's, that's reminds me of my Uber and Uber driver situation. Yeah. No. Yeah. That could be a similar example, right? Cause again, you have workers and you have a corporate owning, you know, business being owned by capitalists. So I think what I would connect this to the idea of rent seeking and economics. So rent seeking is not exactly just charging rent for something, but rent seeking is when you increase your wealth by, without generating wealth. So what that inherently means is you have to take wealth from other people. So what we want is people to get wealth by performing work that adds wealth, creates value to the world, the economy, to your community, whatever. 
Um, so rent seeking is people who just extract it from the community for themselves. So rent, rent seeking on a, almost like the landlords that owns the property and then they just it getting value by renting out to other people. Yes. Now it, there's some details of whether a landlord or not is rent seeking or not is a separate discussion because it's not necessarily just charging rent as rent seeking, but that's the idea. And it's, a lot mm. of people would say, at least in some cases, landlords are rent seeking. Mm. So socialists would say capitalists are rent seeking as well. They're not doing anything, but they've set up a system where they just extract wealth um, without creating any wealth. Let's see, was that all the, so basically, you know, the solution then is to have the workers own it, right? Why do you need a capitalist who just says, I own the factory when we should just let the workers own the factory and then the profit rather than going to the capitalist owner just gets distributed amongst the workers so they get paid more. Hmm. And that's the very basic socialism 101. So, you know, and like I said, rent seeking is a real issue. So uh, before I start critiquing it, do you have any other questions or comments? (laughs) So how, how, how is Marxism, how, how is Marxism try to attack, solve the problem of like the ownership? Like, I think is that, is that, and it's from what you're saying is the main problem is that the capitalists they own everything, right? And the workers, the working class just works and they don't have any equity or ownership of anything. So they don't get the profits from the, the production. So how is that? That's to me it sounds like that's the main issue. And but how does how 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 did Marx like like I guess how how did Marxism try to address that? What's the solution? What's... So the solution is only given in vague terms. So mm-hmm. one thing, one potential critique of it is he didn't really write like a there wasn't. Like if you read the Capital, right? Capital, there's three volumes or Marx's other works. Mm-hmm. It's much more focused on critiquing capitalism over mm. creating a like alternative economic system. So you mm. have some broad guidelines like, okay, have the workers own the means of production, right? Community owned production or whatever. But does that mean like a state government that nationalizes everything? Mm. Or does that mean like your like basically your town gets to vote and decide what the factories in their town do and make? Or does that mean just the business itself is run by the workers sort of democratically so you can't have one owner who runs everything, but just the workers themselves vote. It's, it's all ambiguous, right? Mm. So, you know, the USSR and China under Mao, they both spent decades kind of trying different versions of stuff to seem to get something to work. But the truth is Marx did not give like a clear or detailed way of like how to do it. He was mostly focused on critiquing capitalism. And part of that could be because he didn't publish most of his work. So he published capital volume one, and then two and three have been published by his friend Ingalls, who kind of mm. collected notes afterwards, and they yeah. talked a lot. And so he was heavily involved in like the formation of Marx's ideas, but like he, Marx didn't get to truly finish his work. So would he have put more concrete methods? Maybe, but we'll never know, right? Mm. So it didn't happen. So that that's the first critique is, you know, you, there's a lot open to interpretation about how you're supposed to implement this sort of ideal. Hmm. <clears throat> Got you. So, to summarize, the sounds like the vague, the vague solution is almost like okay, since the the concentration of the ownership are in the hands of the capitalists, right? So maybe the his vague solution maybe is just to redistribute that ownership, right, to everybody else, including the working class. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? Is almost like is up to interpretation, I guess. 
Yeah. How do you do that in a way that works? Just like a fun note, I double checked this and uh, basically, so towards the end of the Soviet Union, they had 2% of their agricultural land was privately owned just so, because yeah. uh, they, they did a lot of things where they mixed in market-based methods and other ideas to try to get things to function. And this 2% produced 30% of their food. Uh, and despite being a massive country with huge amounts of land, hmm. uh, they were consistently importing food, which I would just argue is they, they they struggled to make the system effective in terms of actually like generating food, despite, you know, getting rid of the capitalist, you know, almost all of the capitalists owning the farmland and stuff. They weren't able to make the system work well. So, so you're saying that at that time in Soviet Union, the two percent private ownership of the land. So all the other ones, it's, so net net is already in the so net communist is already in control of the country already, right? In that case, yeah, this oh, was okay. towards the end, like yeah. in the seventies, I believe, and mm. yeah, nine. So ninety eight percent of their farmland was you know owned by the country, the Soviet Union, kind of run by the state, mm. uh, and. But that two percent still produced the vast or a, a massively disproportionate amount of food just because it was better run. So, so how, all right. My main question: How how so how did they actually implement the communism? Do you, like, any details on that? Like how? I guess what what did they do? Did they just take on the land and just redistribute it to everybody? I mean, there's lots of <laughs> there's a lot of different examples. In some cases, uh, they did things like that. A lot of it was. In the USSR, a lot of it was just state control, right? Sort of central planned economies, um, mm. you know, and trying to run things. They were trying to create programs. Basically, you know, it's have bureaucratic people manage workers, factories, farmland, yeah. production, et cetera, stuff like that. And that's really hard uh, and doesn't really work. So I'll skip to one of my main things. There's something called the economic calculation problem. Mm. And basically that's what's saying is how do you figure out like what's the best use of resources so there's an example i've seen where it's like imagine you need to build a railway between two points right two cities so you have two options let's in this simplified example one kind of goes around a non-range so it takes a lot more steel because you got to go a much longer way but it's just Mm. relatively flat ground and then the other way you got to go through the mountain so you got to make a tunnel so it's a little quicker but you need to uh you know explosives to drill a hole and you know, blow a hole through, you need more labor, and then you need engineers to like shore up the tunnel and make it safe. So it has different costs associated with and use real resources. Okay. So, you know, imagine you're the guy in Soviet and, you know, the USSR trying to determine which is the best way to go, right? It would be without, it'd be almost impossible if, if we assume that goods and services are sort of controlled by the state. So they're determining what's produced and how much gets distributed. It'd be almost impossible to determine like, what's the right answer is like, which is the better use of resources. So what the alternative Mm -hmm. to the economic calculus, the alternative here is markets, right? So what I'm leading towards is markets are extremely good at kind of distributing information about the value of resources in a system and distributing those resources. So if you in turn had someone who's like, well, I own a railway and I want to make the most profitable path between these two cities. If they just choose whatever costs less, that's not just maximizing their profit. That's using the like least amount of resources that society needs. So it's inherently doing the thing that's better for society uh, just by consuming the least resources with some caveats. So that's the sort of ideal scenario, right? So markets are extremely effective at basically 
it's kind of like a distributed decision-making thing, right? The, the information about the value of something is pushed through prices through the whole economy so that you don't need to like kind of survey or have a global knowledge of everything that's happening. You just need to look at the prices. And this is so, I mean, in so, so in, sorry, you can go. Yeah, I was going to say in the railroad case, I feel like USSR, like Soviet Union, they can still try to optimize it, right? They can still find a, uh, you can try, able to find us. You, yeah. You can try, but it becomes really hard to, right? Like it just becomes hard to get, if you don't have markets, it becomes really hard to mm. judge what is more important, what is more useful, especially since value for mm. a lot of stuff comes down. A lot of our stuff value is subjective, right? In the end, there's a subjective nature of mm. like what people think is more important. Do they want better food or do they want better furniture or cheaper transport or nicer housing? There's all this stuff you could spend resources on and how do you determine what is what people really want? right? Well, markets mm. allow them to use basically as they spend, markets allow people to sort of basically when they spend in a market, they push that information into the prices of things. Like it's kind of pushed through the economic system. While in, you know, hypothetical state run economy world, I don't know, what would you do? Survey people, ask them, try to like get a feel and it would be overwhelming amount of work. Um, mm. So, I mean, it's the point and as economies scale up, it's you know, it's to the point that markets are pretty much required. And well, I wanted to talk about this then. You could you could do some form of socialism where you still have markets. Um, and there are people who call themselves market socialists. But as you start to do that and sort of tune it to be realistic, I think you get something that looks very much like welfare capitalism or just capitalism mm-hmm. with regulations. And like the boundary doesn't look that clear, right? It's no longer an economic revolution. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. So that's one one of the big issues is uh, you really markets work really well and it's extremely hard to do something without markets. Hmm. Um, another issue is really the value of capitalists, right? So we talked about this idea that capitalists are rent seeking, not doing anything. But uh, I mean, the, the basic statement is the reality is that's not true. So capital has to be built and maintained. Like it's not like factories are found kind of in the woods and someone just said, I claim this factory. Now it's mine. If you want to work here, you know, if you work here, I get to extract the profits, right? So capitalists have to take a risk. They have to decide how they invest their stuff. And as you know, most businesses fail. It's actually really hard to start a new business to create new successful capital. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of historical examples where countries have seized capital, like through, say, they nationalize, right? A revolutionary government happens. They decide to seize some capital. And then very quickly, you see it degrade. It gets far less productive. It starts breaking down. Capital is something that has to be maintained and constantly updated. So it's much more fluid than if you think of it in a very static, I just own this and then I extract value. Like that's not really how capital works. Um, in general, there's multi- four factors of production economics, capital, land, labor, and then entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't just say one of those is what, so Marx has basically said, or idea was that labor is where all the value comes from. But the truth is you need all of them and combined, they create something with more value than what you put in. That's mm-hmm. if, if you don't do that, it's not a successful business, but you can't just point to labor and say all the value comes from labor because if you don't have the capital, it doesn't work. Like you, you couldn't have created any of the value. So that doesn't really mm-hmm. make sense. If there's one factor of production, that's very much rent seeking. It would be land because no one makes land, unlike the other things which are produced 
by people. Land is not. And there's a limited amount of land, which the other three things, again, since they're produced by people, you have unlimited amounts, potentially. Land is limited. So people, there are definitely people who own land, do nothing, and then make a lot of money just because the land they happen to own Hmm. appreciated in value. But just owning capital is much harder. Like you have to do a lot more to make money in general. Um, Hmm. Unless you make a skyscraper, then that way you can. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know. A skyscraper, right? Well, I would say if you're renting out a skyscraper, then it's kind of like land. Investment. But... Yeah, I mean, saying that you have a piece of land fixed, but you create more land, right? By mm. basically stacking up and then put capital into it, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. and I mean, when you think of what, assuming we're not getting rid of landowning, which I'm not saying we are, what you'd want landowners to do is use land in a way that's good for the community and society, right? So if you're in a dense city, you want them to build a skyscraper because that helps you maximize the utilization of land uh what you don't want them to do is sit on a single family house in a city that you know triples in value in 15 years and then they say you know and then they can sell it for two million dollars or something right mm-hmm. this is getting off topic though <laughs> let's stick to uh socialism all right I'm, all, I'm i'm gonna wrap up here pretty soon so uh yeah so before you're wrapping up okay go ahead go ahead yeah i was gonna just say the labor theory of value you know, sounds nice, but um, it doesn't, I don't, it's tough because Marx did not explicitly give away to attach the labor theory of value. So the value, what he called value to price. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been people in academia and other areas who debated how you're supposed to connect like Marxian value to price. But the reality is price or the, you know, subjective theory of value seems to be right, seems to follow like Economics seem to indicate that's like how you get the value and price of a good. There's not really a good way to connect his idea of value to price. Um, And I mean, you can always say something's true value as I define it in my own terms is something that the market doesn't represent, but that's Mm -hmm. not really useful from an economics point of standpoint. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm going to summarize here. Could, could we make socialism work somehow? Cause you know, workers ownership of the means of production is pretty, broad, right? That's not a lot to it. So you could imagine some world where you say, oh, when you hire an employee, they have to get some meaningful stake in the company. Um, and then, so then every worker owns the company, right? So they own the means of production, but otherwise you still have businesses competing against each other in a free market economy. But the problem is, you know, like, it's just, you're just, just be in the end, you just be regulating forms of compensation, right? So mm-hmm. there's a question of how much workers would prefer stock over paycheck, right? I think mm-hmm. most workers would actually generally want more of a stable paycheck. And that's one of the advantages they get in sort of modern capitalism is you get a reliable, uh, dependable paycheck, you know, generally through and through. So even when your comp- the company's not making profit, they're paying all their employees the same thing, right? So you're income is not going to fluctuate based on the success and uh, failures of the company, you know, barring the company failing entirely. Another thing is companies are really big now. A lot of them, it's like how much meaningful control can individual employees have, right? Amazon has hundreds of thousands of employees. How are they going to all vote on what to do, right? That's not going to be a good way to run a business. So, you know, when you, when you start, I feel like when you start looking at how you can make this sort of market socialism thing work, where you accept a few things like, okay, you need markets and you still need competition 
and you know, so you give people stock or whatever, it really just looks like some weird regulations. Like, okay, you know, businesses have to give their employees a stock and then they can just sell that stock if they want to, right? Like that, mm. you could call that market socialism now, but it's not really meaningful change to the economy. Mm. Anyway, all right, I've talked for a lot now. So, so, I'm so gonna, basically you are my... saying that Marxism is stupid. <laughs> I'm saying, what I want to say is it doesn't work. Some of the critiques of capitalism were or might still be valid. Uh, one one issue is that things improved a lot since his time. So like yeah. since he was looking at you know the world, we've actually seen how we can make capitalism work a lot better mm. um, in a different way than he predicted. Right? He thought capitalism would actually get worse from his time in like the late 1800s. He thought the standards for workers would actually get lower. Um, and the opposite has happened. The state, like the, the amount of, you know, in industrialized economies running capitalist models, you know, the standard of living for workers has gone up drastically in like the 150 so years since he lived. Um, we've just so, done it a different path than he predicted. So what's the context of, cause I feel like to understand his idea, maybe it's useful to understand the man behind the idea as well. Like, do you know anything about Karl Marx? <laughs> I don't know. Besides, he was besides he was descended from a rich family. Yeah, he was kind of like a not like super rich for the time, but kind of fairly rich. He mm. like spent mo a lot of his life in academia, studying like philosophy and history and stuff, mm. you know. And then he wrote a lot, and then he that's how he ended up making money. Like his parents cut him off near, when he was almost thirty or something. They were like, "We're going to stop giving you an allowance." Uh, and then he lived with he would live with Ingalls or with his or have his wife work. And he would occasionally do jobs, but he ended up like borrowing a lot of money and kind of bumming off friends and family. It was kind of bad. Like I said, it's kind of stereotypical, a little funny, but, um, but I mean, so he, what I think so he, important. so he, so he come out with the whole theory against capitalism because he hate his parents for cutting him off. He doesn't want to work. Yeah. yeah. Maybe a little bit. No, no, that's probably not why he did it. And I, what I would say more important than his personal life is if you look at the context of then like capital, like the lives of workers during his lifetime were pretty shit, right? Like there were a lot of like, you worked for shit conditions for shit wages, stuff that people now would call, you know, worse than sweatshops that we see in third world countries. And that's just was what a lot of people had to do at the time. So it's not understand, it's kind of understandable when you look at that framework to be like, why would he be like, wow, this is really terrible. Mm. Um, we should do something else. It's just, it's, you know, I'm not saying I could have done a better job to predict how like the world would evolve over the next 200 years. He just, uh, also failed to do that. Mm. Do you have any, do you, do you have any inkling? Like how did he like come up with an idea? Maybe how did he like, what influenced his thinking process? I guess. Like, so, so one yeah. thing is socialism existed before Marx and this mm. is actually, uh, probably something I don't think most people realize, but like there were socialists as like a political ideology before him. And, but since his time, he kind of became so influential about his ideas on it kind of became the de facto, like what is socialism? Well, it's Marxism. Like, you mm. know, it's like his ideas are what people think of now. Um, but like he did like originate from like a, there were, there were people already having similar kind of ideas and grounds works. I don't, you know, I didn't care as much about like the history and where he came from in terms mm -hmm. of like history and philosophy and his thinking, but yeah. So, but there yeah. were, there are stuff you can look up to see like what the early socialists were yeah. advocating for.
So what are the main difference between Marxism, and socialism, and communism, right? Because right, uh, I think we all, and it's personally, I feel that they all sounds the same to me. But so communism, so socialism is supposed to be worker ownership of the means of production, very broad. Yeah. Communism is supposed to be a stateless and moneyless society with yeah. worker ownership of the means of production. Um, yeah. So no government, no money think of everyone lives in like communes and like votes on what to do with their society. And then just like kind of barters goods and give stuff out. Uh, Marxism is really indistinguishable. I think with modern uses of socialism, right? Cause like I said, originally socialism was its own thing, but his ideas have become so influential that it's basically his ideas are what socialism largely is, or even, I mean, obviously it's continued to evolve and people have like expanded it since his time, but like they expanding mm. from his work, right? There's not, yeah. I'm not aware of anyone who's like, oh, well, there's these other pre-Marx socialists. Like, you know, what about their ideas? I've, you know, I've never seen that. Maybe someone somewhere, but, you know, if you're someone who's super into the academia of Marxism, socialism, and want to correct any of these simplifications, feel free to email us and we'll bring you on. But for now, that's what we're going to go with. <laughs> it's I see. So socialism and com- communism, the main difference, communism and is is a stateless, right? And government, and then socialism, you still have a central government. I'm assuming. Yeah. So it's theory, at least in some theories, socialism is sort of the stepping stone. So you have, mm-hmm. you can imagine, and it marks. So for all the critique Marx had of capitalism, he a- acknowledged it as a good thing and that it did a lot, right? So capitalism developed the means of production and technology. He directly stated like, you know, capitalism is responsible for increasing production to increase the potential standards of lives and the ability to not have most people in poverty. Cause you know, pre industrial revolution and the advent of capitalism, almost everyone would be in extreme poverty just cause we couldn't produce enough. So he viewed it as there would be, it's kind of like the idea there'd be stages, right? You use capitalism to sort of produce and get the economy going. Socialism more equitably distributes it, but you still have a government kind of running things, kind of guiding the transition. And then theoretically, after you've been socialist for a while, you know, sort of just sort of transition to this state where the government keeps getting smaller and smaller. And, you know, people don't worry about money as much because they just have all their needs met by the community's production of goods and services. And you sort of just hypothetically smoothly transition to this stateless moneyless society of course how to actually do that in the end no one really knows because every attempt has stopped at the government controls everything part and never gotten away from it really or never pushed more towards this ideal communism right like no one no, we do past we, the we do have a solution now what's that bitcoin of course bitcoin cryptocurrency yeah, because I mean that's that's the whole idea of cryptocurrency, right? The, everything is like because you got, everything is controlled by government, and the cryptocurrency is everything decentralized now. And there's no government, right? And that's the whole idea of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, all the other stuff, blockchain, right? But you can't really use Bitcoin to buy and sell goods. You can now in El Salvador. In El Salvador, <laughs> and then I guess what I should really be saying, sorry, that was a dumb thing to say, in hypothetical communist utopia you don't buy or sell anything in the first place so what would you use bitcoin for oh just keep 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 track of the transactions i guess i don't know (laughs) yeah so anyway so you know that's my summary my attempt to explain their viewpoint which is capitalist or leeches 
my disagreement with some of the key issues like are capitalists leeches and you need markets to have a functioning economy. Uh, yeah. And I think that's basically it. Ah, that, uh, am I, you going to say something? Well, no, I was just thinking it's, it, it sort of is fits really well with, uh, what Matt was, or Marx's background fits really well with Matt, what Matt was just saying there, like basically transition to like government owns everything and then slowly like money becomes like an unnecessary item and people just take care of each other's needs. Like it's sort mm. of like in Marx's life, like his parents gave him everything and then he transitioned to just other people taking care of him. So, and money just stopped. So like the government gave him his money and then, you know, with her via his parents and then, you know, his family and friends just started taking care of him. So, yeah, like I said, I'm not trying to attack him for the person, his his personal history too much here. You know, he might have not been the greatest guy personally, but you know, who, what <laughs> so, genius didn't have personal issues, right? Yeah, I, I'm not convinced he was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing so, else. You have to admit he had a massive influence on the world. I won't say a positive influence, but okay. he did. Let's, he accomplished more than you will. Probably <laughs> nothing personal, but no, that's that's it's true. I mean, even speaking, the, oh god, you know, speaking of his influence and the impacts on the world, right? So, uh, you guys have you did you guys learn anything when you're schooling like about Lenin? A little, yeah, you have AP uh, Euro. <laughs> oh, really? I, I remember because I, I, I think he's in elementary school or middle school. Now, elementary school, probably we were learning about Lenin already. Of course, it's because I was in China, right? So, <laughs> so the stories I heard about Lenin. So, okay, actually, let's compare now. What what kind of story you were learning about Lenin? Now he he actually they found in the Soviet Union, right? Any before in the communist version? Yeah, I mean, I don't know this. I mean, I'm trying to even remember. It could have just been something as simple as sort of when he was in power and mm -hmm. sort of what, like, uh, you know, sort of just very general information because, I mean, I mean, your summary there is about... Was he a bad guy or a good guy? <laughs> I mean, I feel like he was probably painted negatively. So, in America, of course. <laughs> yeah, yes. Got you. Yeah. I guess uh, my point is that in elementary school, as well as like you know, kid like growing up, the story we heard about Lenin that he's a great leader. Of course, you know he does a lot of nice stuff and that's really good for the people. You know. So anyway, so that's the story I heard. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did they say also say good things about Stalin, or was he more objectively considered bad? Um, actually, I yeah, we we did not. I don't think I learned anything about Stalin. So more like Lenin, yeah, because Lenin, because I think Mao, the Chinese, uh, I think Chinese version of the communism from Mao, right? He got it. I think he he basically copied it from Lenin, right? So mm -hmm. the Lenin version of Marxism, right? So so Stalin, yeah. So we we did, I did not learn anything about Stalin. So he's probably a even worse guy. <laughs> Stalin, yeah. I feel like, could be a gray area in U.S. schools just because it's like he helped us win World War II, but, you know, mm. then he was murdered tons of his own people. So. <laughs> Did he really? 
gray area, Mike says. <laughs> Rip your career when this goes public. You're done. I said in our schools. Oh, okay. Like, That's I didn't say that I didn't say for me personally, but gotcha. Um, yeah. Uh, so Tinky yeah. confirmed. <laughs> anyway. So talking about influence, I think one one thing I'm curious about is how the he's why are like very smart people like Lennon on the other leaders, right? They even I even whatever you say about Mao Zedong, I think he's a very smart guy as well. But I was wondering why these like intellectuals, right? Very smart intellectuals, like people like got actually attracted to Marxism. Even if if you say his idea was bad, but why are these people, like intelligent people, like get attracted to the idea? So they even try to start a revolution to implement it, right? You know, this is obviously just getting into more and more speculation, but I think yeah. I think Marx is able to present a vision of our like. So the world is extremely complex, right? And hard to understand. Hmm. I think Marx is able to present a like sort of comprehensive vision of the world where he sort of offered an explanation and understanding of like why things aren't great and like how to improve them that was very attractive to people. Um, so it, you know, it, it did a few things. One, it kind of presents, I, I would say that Marxism is sort of populist at its heart and that it sort of mm. presents an other group that is the cause of your problems, right? In this case, mm. it's capitalist. Mm. Um, and so it kind of creates this idea where you're both, you can both fix the world and like do moral good by, you know, sort of addressing this evil inequality, this other group that you don't belong to. It's like, you know, the they're the ones ruining everything. And it also appeals to, I think, well, in the past, I think in the past, it was understandable. A lot of smart people probably thought, couldn't we just run the world better, right? Like you go back, if you're in living in 1900, right? Like the world, you have this chaotic economies. And at the time, recession and uh, like the cycle, the business cycle where you'd have regular recessions and booms was more Mm -hmm. significant. This was before the government got a little better with like the Fed in terms of sort of leveling that stuff off. So you see, you see these issues and a lot of smart people, I think very intuitively are like, well, if we just planned, you know, to make everything people needed, couldn't we like solve this? Right. Mm. And I don't think at the time we understood the real challenge, you know, like I said, the calculation problem, the economic calculation problem, we didn't really understand the true challenge it was, would be to do something like that or the difference having like proper incentives makes for people to work and stuff. So I think it's was sort of an understandable trap for smart people to be like, uh, you know, we can totally just plan this better and we don't need, you know, this sort of economic system. It's kind of how like there's been a lot of engineers look at the stock market and they see graphs yeah. and they say, I can totally figure out like an algorithm or system that predicts this and makes money. Right. Mm-hmm. But it turns out to be like way harder, but it's like a trap where smart people are like, we can probably just solve this when the answer is, it's actually you know the answer is you can't just like centralize and solve it, it out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you you cannot be man-made. You cannot like create a system that works. Right. You're not at least you're not going to make a system that works better than markets. And then once yeah. you have that, I think that alone starts undermining huge pillars of how you would have a hypothetical socialist mm. society. So how so how did he propagate the idea? Mark he how did he market the idea to other people? Did he just 
it sounds like he just wrote books, published those books uh, into different translations. Did he do any speeches, like go around, talk to people? He, yeah, he mostly just wrote a lot. And it wasn't oh. all books. He also did pamphlets and like smaller mm. things. So Capital, the three volumes of Capital, the first of which he published and the second two of which Frederick Ingalls published mm. were his like the big versions. But it was the Communist Manifesto was a much more simplified, smaller. I don't yeah. know, would you call it a book or like a pamphlet? It's a book. It's a book. I got so, it. I got it on Amazon Kindle version for forty five cents. <laughs> it's much. It's much shorter, right? And it's yeah. it's, um, you know, it was kind of like the quick summary. But he was mostly writing, right? So you can think yeah. of like political writers right now, you know, who mm. disseminate their ideas and stuff. That was essentially what he was doing. Just at mm. the time, writing was the only way to disseminate your ideas widespread, right? There was no people going on TV and giving speeches or anything like that. Mm. Obviously. Okay. Okay. So part of the reason he got, he was able, to, he was able to, people were, he was able to widespread that ideas because first of all, it was, he was one of a few people that was doing that, doing that mm. political writing. Maybe is that fair I'm, to say? I'm sure he wasn't the only one, but like I mean, he did present the competition. The competition was less. Now we have every day. We have everybody no. was writing, writing. Well, that's everybody true. doing, yeah. That, I mean, that's true. I'm sure there were a lot less, but I think, you know, I think again, you come out at the time and then this guy comes in with this totally kind of almost novel way of viewing like society and the economy mm-hmm. and how things interact and connect. And again, he presents this coherent vision and this potential like that displays a problem that's like, oh, if we fix this, you know, things will be so much better, uh, you know. I think it's it's understandable how that could catch on, but in hindsight, mm. I feel like people living right now should have enough hindsight in history and mm. like the things we've learned since then to be like, yeah, that's not not actually good. a good idea. Yeah, I mean, he was writing at the time of sort of like the Industrial Revolution, right? Where or like just before, maybe. I mean, eighteen fifties in that time range, plus or minus a few decades, because um, I mean, he wrote over several decades of his life, um, right. and I wouldn't say that's the exactly the beginning of the industrial revolution so i think it was well underway but it was still what probably like early to mid parts of it sure so i mean i guess i mean at that time like in american history you learn a lot about so i mean the american industrial revolution may have been a bit later but you learn a lot about sort of the idea of like robber barons and you know like the horrible factory conditions so i mean it makes total sense that and particularly like Okay, now we have these corporations that are hundreds of thousands of people. They function on all continents and, you know, basically, uh, as Matt said, like an Amazon worker doesn't make sense for like every Amazon worker to have sort of equal say in what's going on because, you know, are they really going to like are the people who are doing advertising or, you know, uh, who are like helping pack boxes or are programming the server, are they all going to have equal understanding of what's like best for the business or like what's going to produce the most value for society? Probably not. I mean, back then it's like, I mean, you had like big, you know, I mean, like, I mean, we were talking about child labor earlier. I was thinking of like the Lowell Mills, you know, where they made, clothing you know from looms and it was just a big factory like a single factory floor you know like i mean it was a big building but it was a factory floor with people working on it making like you know basically sort of like a limited product and that you know the people working on the floor probably had like as good an an understanding of the product as like the person who you know put forth the money so i mean that meal is in massachusetts right yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. do do, do you know the story of the meal 
how he got started? Because it was on a river. No, I, I'm saying that the, the idea, the, the technology, they stole the technology from Britain. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the Industrial Revolution in America followed the British one for a reason, but... Yeah. Yeah, so, but... Copycats. Yeah. But in <laughs> any much. case, I mean, it makes sense that, like, you tell people, like, hey, you know that guy who's paying you, like, not, like, I mean, we, like, not enough to live right now? Like, like, you are doing, like, essentially, like, that, like, they're, I feel like back then it was much more feasible to say like hey like we you know this group of 25 of us like probably could share like you know run the business at this point and like you know share the proceeds and actually live as opposed to this guy who's you know super wealthy compared to us and paying us nothing and doing minimal but yeah no and in in a very static world i think that again that makes more sense right but the key is like you know, the initial investment and opportunity and like insight to like build what, where, and then the continued of updating, maintaining and transition, right? Because businesses that are successful for a long time fail when the economy and world changes, they don't, um, you know, not that the capitalists are always successful at doing it, obviously either, but like, it's like a lot more than just running the factory that does the thing. Cause that's going to, you know, you can do that for like 10 or 20 years maybe. And then you're going to fail. Your, your business is going to fail. Right. Right. Exactly. And I guess that's what I mean. I think at the beginning or even mid part of the industrial revolution where it's just like, I mean, I don't know how dynamic these industries were. Like it yeah. was a net word. Now it's like, yes, any company that isn't like very dynamic, constantly looking towards sort of the next like area to break into, or, you know, the next way to improve their product or, you know, they're screwed. So also surplus value. So that was one of Mark's thought. One of his most important ideas was the idea of surplus value, right? That capitalists get their profit from the surplus value they're extracting from laborers. And that's why it's exploitation. And people say all work under capitalism is exploitation things. And still people still apply that today, but like mm-hmm. in modern day, most business owners don't make very little to, they extract few to no profits from the business themselves, mm-hmm. right? Why is Jeff Bezos wealthy? He doesn't pay himself very much at all. Amazon pays billions to its employees every year and doesn't give him much of a salary, but his stock ownership is what goes up, right? Like mm-hmm. nowadays, it's all about that ownership value is how capitalists essentially make their money and become wealthy. So that, I, but that doesn't really make sense exactly because with the idea of surplus value, because they're, I mean, if, if you're not taking a salary, but just letting your stocks appreciate, you are literally extracting no surplus value according to like Marx's definitions. Now you could try to address that and say, oh, well, the workers should be the one also should, you know, kind of the circular logic. Well, if the workers own some of the capital, then they would, you know, get the value of the capital increasing, you know, increasing value of the capital, which is what you could say the stocks are, but. But you could also, fair, I think under Marx's definitions, you could fairly say in these cases, workers are being literally paid the full value of their labor, um, which, you know, it's not exactly consistent. It's just another way the economy has changed since his time and that, you know, the ideas don't really make sense anymore. Mm. Okay. So the in summary, did Marx get anything right, though? Like, what, what did he get right, if there's anything? I mean... I think he did get like I think a lot of the criticisms at the time applied. Mm-hmm. Um 
and but what he missed was the route to improve things. Hmm. And I would say if you distilled if you took the focus off of capitalist and put it onto rent seeking behavior and econo- economics, there are still people and businesses who are do or try to rent seek. Um, I think those are that's a very fair criticism. So you kind of broaden that a little bit and say, hey, these are issues we need to address. I think that's valid. Do you have any example of rent seeking behavior back in the day in in Mark's time, or maybe you can give example in like modern day as well?、Uh, I don't know about Marx's time.、Uh, I mean, maybe well, like a little bit earlier. I know one. Big example is like mercantilism. So this is sort of pre-capitalist revolution. But let's say you go back a two hundred years. Okay, so not exactly Marxist time, but they would be trade routes, right? But often you'd have like the government would say only this company gets the rights to trade with this colony or something like that. Okay,、um, and that's a very ex- clear example of rent-seeking because you can't have competition. They're just given the only rights to do something like that.、Um, in modern day. People who own <laughs> a lot of the people who own single-family housing in cities, <laughs> housing、okay. prices are surging immensely. They typically vote against things that would increase the number of housing, and the housing shortage therefore increases the value of their property drastically. And they do nothing. So、mm. they both sit in a house.、Uh, they use a they use some amount of land, right? So they're using the house. They're not. It's not like they're invested in it in a sense that they're, you know. Losing money, like they're paying for their own living, often less than what rent would be,、uh, and they are both simultaneously making huge money from investing while also voting against the interests that would benefit the community as large. Again, just to protect their own, you know, financial interests or just their interest in what they want the community to be like. Right? Some people probably aren't、mm-hmm. doing it because they know that they don't. Probably are not explicitly thinking, "I'm going to make my house worth millions of dollars." Some of them are probably just thinking, "You know, sure, I live." Within the Seattle city boundaries, but I don't want to have a an apartment nearby. You know, I should be able to have my suburban dream inside the city. Yeah, and sometimes there's a movement happening in San Francisco, right? A lot of people, and I don't want to, like, not in my backyard or something. Is that is that、oh, a、NIMBY. movement? Not yeah, in my NIMBY. backyard. Well, so so they don't want to build anything new, right? Because that way would like decrease their values, right? Is that is that something you're talking about? Kind of example. Yeah, that would be rent seeking, right? Because、mm. what they're doing is—I mean, I think land owning is the—it's not always going to be, but it's the most probably the most common way to rent seek would be own land, right? And if、mm. you just—I mean, there's plenty of people who just buy land and do nothing with it, and then they sell it later and they make a bunch of money. And you have now made—and I mean, think about that: have you have you created any wealth into the economy by simply owning land? The answer is obviously no. So where does that new wealth you get when you sell it for more? Well, that comes from the other people who actually want to use the land.、Mm. Um, boom, rent seeking. So this doesn't necessarily mean landlords, because I would say it's actually good if a landlord builds a big apartment where there's housing、mm. is needed. And then they make sure they will collect money from rents, but they're providing a very useful thing. They're providing more housing for people. Um, so that's what、mm. we want. Got you. So basically, Marx at his time saw an economy he believed would continue to be static, and he thought the only way, like, to address like gross inequality, like you just needed to like take the people who had a ton and divide it amongst them. Modern day, we see a departure. For, like, so what he got very wrong was like the economy became more dynamic and sort of. 
the thing that totally undermined him was competition. And so shortcomings in the economy today may be like, maybe I guess overcome or aided by just more competition. To be, that's pretty good. I would say, yeah. One thing I would say is he did think he didn't think things would just stay static. He actually thought they would get worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, We mentioned this in the last one, but like he predicted that the, uh, you know, the, how much workers get, he predicted like the pay, of workers would fall to subsistence level basically where it's just enough to survive and he thought that would inevitably happen at the same time as the profit of any business falls to like near zero due to sort of like almost like over competition between different business firms between workers for wages you know people compete until they like literally can't lower the price anymore I see. um and again and at the time that could be you know, the, you could say that seems reasonable because competition did tend to drive down prices, but now we have a, a lot more history to show that's, you know, that doesn't happen. And there are ways we've increased, you know, the, uh, especially for workers' wages, right? We, there's ways to increase those either through legislation or action by unions or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. So I want to go back to Marx's idea again a little bit. Now, how, because free market, the idea of free market, because Adam Smith it was before his time, right? So he probably read Adam Adam Smith already. So I was wondering, how did he attack the idea of free market? Because the free market makes sense to me right now, but it could be hindsight bias. But how at that time, how did he really believe that free market is not going to work? And how did he attack free market? Do Do you know anything about that? So you know, as I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure that Marx criticized the free market that much. Um, even though many of the people hmm. who uh, many of the people who sort of advocate for socialism do now, but I remember yeah. there's, I'm pretty sure if I'm remembering this right, I believe he explicitly criticized the idea of labor vouchers. Cause there were people in his time who are like, we should get rid of money and have like labor vouchers as like one of the ideas of like, how do you get, you know, how do you make this sort of like labor theory of value based economy where, you know, what do you mean labor? Labor, who, who gives out the labor labor voucher? The community, whoever is owning and running the means of production, right? So some community. Oh no, no capitalists. Well, not in socialism, right? Whoever replaces the capitalists, oh. right? Someone, so capitalists, oh, someone okay. replaces them, right? And so rather than owning and extracting profits from their ownership, maybe the idea is maybe just a worker does that work, the capitalist, just for a wage, but right? Like that's the hypothetical Mm. idea. And sorry, but in this case, uh, you know, there there was something I'm pretty sure I read where he criticized the idea of labor vouchers as like an alternative to money because it just, you know, one, it's kind Mm. of just ends up being money in the first place, right? And then just like a less effective form. So I don't think... Okay. Yeah, I would have to double check that. Okay. Okay, okay. So he... So he did not really, maybe he may not have attacked the free market idea directly. But you say, you mentioned that currently, like modern, currently socialists, they do attack uh, free market. So what are the main criticisms of uh, free market? Uh, They think that the profit incentive creates perverse behavior, um, which it does in some cases, but I think much Mm. more so it creates good incentives. But like they'll say, I mean, you ever heard Bernie Sanders be like, health insurance is bad you shouldn't profit from you know sick people right they view they view profit as evil 
or they'll say, you know, I think Bernie Sanders also not to, you know, rag on him too much. I don't hate Bernie, but he'll be like, you don't need 20 brands of deodorant, right? They'll look at things like that and be like, oh, free market has excess waste. Um, sometimes they'll also be like, it's fragile. I know when like the ship got caught in the Erie Canal, there were people who were like, oh, the free market global economy is too fragile a system. Um, oh, because it was, they tried to be very efficient. They don't have a lot of slack in the system. Yeah, which if you know, those are contradictory things that you'll see people say. Now I'm, I'm talking about what random people online say predominantly. So this isn't like a coherent academic analysis, but when in one hand, they'll be like, Oh, it's waste capitalism and is wasteful and the profit sent of and free markets, you know, has all this waste, which there is some waste. But then they'll, on the other hand, they'll be like, Oh, it's so, you know, it's not robust. They don't, they try to skip steps, but those are like opposing things, right? Like they'll try to be, they try to balance. There's naturally a balance where you try to be as lean as you can to reduce waste because waste costs money, right? You're removing profit. But on the flip side, if you are too lean and then anything happens and then you, you know, caught unprepared or unready, that might hurt you a lot too. So every business is trying to balance those two opposing issues. Uh, and I think the profit mark, motive and just letting people do it naturally is a pretty good way to let that work out. Hmm. Okay. But yeah. I mean, you surely you've seen stuff online where people talk about profit as this is like a bad thing, right? They're like, Oh, yeah. like you shouldn't profit from this. Right. But it doesn't really make sense. Right. Like, and especially they say profiting from food or water or like the basic needs. But like if, if providing for the basic needs of people, like the goods and services they require is not what you should profit from. Like what, what is more worthy of giving someone profit than providing what people need, right? Like, look, if Taco Bell wants to make a cool ranch Dorito taco and profit from it, like that's fine. But like, I would argue that people who are providing healthcare profiting is better and more important because we should incentivize people who want to provide healthcare to other people, right? You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's weird when you think about it. I think it's weird. Mm. But yeah. basically anytime, you know, a lot of it's also people just don't like, like if you don't agree with what the market does, rather than just being like, oh, the market does this because that's what a lot of people want. They'll just be like, the market's bad. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, recently I think is one of the economists, he got a Nobel Prize. I forgot his name now, but he... I think I, I guess going back to capitalism, right? The free market idea and the profit of it, it does create incentives. Is is how you implement it, right? I think a lot of companies in the eighties and nineties they were try, they only focus on shareholder values. So in that case, they always they focus on short short term, uh, the short term profit, right? Because they only want to increase the shareholder values, right? Uh, also, a lot of my CEO compensation really tied to the share value. So if you made a price of the share go up, you know, you get a lot of compensation. So so they tend to make these companies to focus on short short term uh, profits. And but currently a lot of companies are trying to move away from that but try to include as they call it stakeholder values, which means that including the customers or the other people. So that hopefully like Amazon's are in there as well. So they, they that's one way to fix that I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, so that's actually brings something else I wanted to mention, like, like the profit incentive and free markets doesn't capture everything. Right. And so that's an accurate thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, the biggest example we, I would say is climate change, right? Like a lot of businesses, industries, 
uh, produce or create things that will produce carbon dioxide and output that into the environment. And that's going to have a real cost on us already. We've built up a cost and we're going to have to pay that in the future. Continuing to output that increases the cost. So, but you, so at a glance, you can say, oh, like, you know, they prop by polluting the environment, they're profiting, you know, profit incentive is working against what we want as a society. But this is actually really easy to fix with something like a carbon tax. And it's actually uh, like, it's not just easy to fix. I would argue it's actually the best tool to get to somewhere where you say ethically consume, right? So like, let's say, you know, how do you decide, like when you have a bunch of different products potentially made different ways using different power sources, how do you figure out which outputs the least carbon, right? Or use the less resources, including outputting carbon. It, again, it would be impossible. You'd have to do all sorts of analysis on everything. But if you price carbon appropriately, right? Like let's hypothetically say you priced carbon enough, the price that it, it takes to remove carbon from the atmosphere, right? Like emitting a ton of carbon, we can extract it from the atmosphere. How much does that cost? Right now that would be too high because we don't have good enough technology. But like in the future, that could be what we actually do. Um, so by pricing that in, you could just literally say, what's the best for the environment? It's what it's the cheapest if you just price in the costs to the environment. So these are called externalized costs. Um, and if you internalize those, bring the cost in, you don't have to think anymore. You just say, oh, the cheaper good is better for the environment because it's using less resources. And I know that because it's cheaper, right? Like something that's more expensive has to be using more resources. Yes. Or so there could be other factors of cost, but you know, in general, you'd be confident that the cheaper thing is generally better. Yeah, I'm personally, I'm I don't really understand carbon tax. So, do you have an example like how you actually, like, for example, a company? So, so yeah, can you give an example? Yeah, so you would uh, tax. <laughs> you would you would give taxes on companies based on the uh, carbon they emit doing things, and mm. or you tax things that would emit carbon so like you'd you wouldn't necessarily tax chevron directly but you could put a tax on a gallon of gas that's equivalent to the car because you know how much carbon a gallon of gas will emit when it's burned so it's something like that um similar i mean you can basically draw all carbon emissions not all i'm sorry most carbon emissions come from power there's also stuff like cement and stuff so you could kind of first you could start with power and say hey you know, wherever you're paying for power, either directly in electricity or things like gas and coal, like when you sell that, you have to pay a tax, um, the power directly or the things that will be burned that create it. You have to pay a tax It's equivalent to the carbon that was used or will be produced. Um, similar things for like cement and other stuff that does do emit carbon. It's actually so the I mean, company. They, they, yeah, so the government paying a tax to the government, right? Yeah. Either the company or the consumer. It doesn't really matter who. Um pays the tax because oh. in the end if you put the tax on the company they just pass it off to the consumer so sometimes people mm. say don't tax consumers tax the business well most of the time it doesn't matter there's some details about the elasticity of a price of a good but mm. sidestepping that now generally taxes are just pushed on the consumers anyway so yeah so then the government mm. gets paid and now what you do with that could be lots of things okay so one thing is you could just use it to address the cost um or you could use it to just, I like the t carbon tax and dividend where you just give the money back because a carbon tax would be regressive. So that means it would hurt poor people more than rich people. But if you took all the money from the carbon tax and then you just gave it back to everyone equally, call it the green check, whatever. Like people get a green check once a year, twice a year, whatever. Uh, now it is progressive because rich people would 
pay more in the carbon tax than they would get from the check and vice versa. Poor people would pay less carbon tax than they get in the check. So you'd actually be redistributing money from the wealthy to the poor while also strongly incentivizing green technology, green products. But honestly, even if you just burn the money that came from the carbon tax, which would be stupid, like just having the tax on itself would help the market prioritize green technology, which is happening anyway. Like the market is moving towards green technology at an ever accelerating pace, but this is something that could help push it faster and get us to where we want to be quicker. And again, you'd have the revenue, which realistically you could do something useful with too, whatever you decide that is. So the point is profit is great because it's not just good in general. It's not just a good way to incentivize largely good behaviors, but you can use it as a tool with simple things like taxes to help do what you want. Hmm. Mike, you were going to say something? Uh, I mean, it's just like it's an old idea. Like they do it with cigarettes. It's like every time like legalizing like drugs comes up, it's the same. Like, oh, just, you know, we'll legalize them and then just put tons of taxes on them such that they become like expensive, uh, expensive enough where it's like a lot of people, like, you know, sort of the people who would probably not do like try them unless it was just like readily available, like wouldn't do them. And, you know, you could put the money back into like, you know, rehab programs or whatever. Like, I mean, a lot of society's ills, like basically yeah, Ned, can, yeah, can be helped. Yeah. Yeah. I think Mike brought a really good point. Made me think about a counterexample to the carbon tax, right? Not almost like critique, right? So you put a tax on cigarettes. Did it actually reduce the people of stop people from smoking cigarettes? Not really, right? Did it? Well, I mean, I I don't know if that did it or it's just I feel like and this is another interesting idea of like things don't need to be illegal to sort of lose favor within society. I think smoking just became uncool. Like Yeah, so so I mean that is like I mean it's like, you know, basically like it used to be like every restaurant had a smoking section and you know, now it's like you can't smoke indoor. Like I mean that is I guess I don't know. If, I, I assume that's mostly businesses implementing that. I think it's point. a lot of legislation. I think they ban smoking indoors in most places. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess. I guess my point is that you put a tax on cigarette. And I guess initially the idea was to maybe reduce the number of people smoke, prevent people from like smoking, right? But it did not really do what it intended to do, right? So I'm, I guess I'm trying to make an analogy. Where like if you put a tax on carbon, is it actually gonna reduce people from driving right for example and then also right the answer is yes and what's important about carbon is that we have an alternative for basically everything you would want to you would tax with carbon so because you have an alternative that does the same thing mm-hmm. now you're you're waiting a choice right if it's first like if it was just first driving versus not driving at all um like if people like there's people who have to drive okay so you're right so if you just imagine electric cars didn't exist and you just added a carbon tax many people most americans would just have to eat it pay it and drive maybe they drive a little less when they can but like it wouldn't be a huge change but what more importantly it does is it starts to shift the economic you know decision on should i get an electric car or should i buy more efficient cars like hybrid and things yeah. um, and it pushes people towards doing that because they have an alternative option um yeah. that's that's very important uh, i see okay yeah. yeah in the cigarette case there's no not really the alternative right 
two well, plus cigarettes. Vaping yeah. is vaping hit by those taxes? I mean, maybe no. it helped push people to vape. I don't know. <laughs> but vaping just started now. I mean, back in the day, even the cigarette tax. But anyway, that's beside the point. So my another critique about the carbon tax is, if you put tax on carbon, since you paying the money to the government, so the government actually getting profit from people using carbon. Does it not incentivize the government actually to encourage people, maybe behind the back, to get people to use carbon more? And that way, they can go, get more profit. This incentive, right? Just looking that way. Well, it's not like the gov- people who work for the government get to just take the tax money as profit, to like as their salary, right, or anything. Um, and I guess it would be hard to think of what would the government could do that would incentivize carbon more than the tax money disincentivizes it they just they, they could just prevent policies of clean energy they just prevent that like, maybe we don't invest a lot in clean energy just let carbon go and keep going right i mean i guess it's not impossible but yeah i'm just and talking about what? incentive right if you have so, giving incentive to the government to making money from people using carbon they would just bias toward that right so yeah but you're thinking of the government i think a bit too much like a business right because the government doesn't try to make money mm. generally okay like that's not i mean they need they do try to collect enough revenue right but like that's not the primary motivation of most politicians mm. is not to have the government collect more money i mean i would argue <laughs> like a, there's a whole party that mostly just wants to decrease taxes no matter what even if it puts the government into massive debt mm. so Okay, okay. And then the other party... (laughs) What? I said the government's job is procuring votes. That that is accurate, which is part of the issue because it's carbon tax, despite being the best policy ever, is not widely popular as it should be. (laughs) So, unfortunately, it doesn't help people secure votes that much right now. Mm. But I will continue to preach the gospel as much as I can... No, Thank I, God for Republicans, I guess. <laughs> well, I yeah. do like the idea of, because when you bring up the carbon tax, I'm like, oh, that's very similar to like the drug or cigarette. But you are right that uh, having alternatives is a big difference. So, or you can, like, yeah, you can think of it like fossil fuels because they've been around for a couple of years have like an inherent advantage, right? They already have the industry built. Mm-hmm. Gas stations are already built. Refineries are already built renewables have to develop a lot of the stuff so there's more of this initial cost so it sort of just helps balance the field to kind of get you know get going and as we get once we get far enough it won't matter like renewables will become cheaper than oil and gas and it will quickly spiral to they'll taking over more and more of the market but you know again it's just to help accelerate that all right i think i think my is getting bored on a topic of carbon tax so Let's going back to the exciting topic of Marxism and socialism and communism. So my, my next question is, is Marxism like, or socialism or communist, is, are they, is it economic philosophy or political philosophy? Or are they both? That's a good question. Um, yeah. You know, I think Marx tried it to be both, mm. but it, the, in, like in the modern field of economics, uh, Marxism is basically not considered <laughs> like it's not used. It's kind of like alchemy in chemistry. Okay. Like it's similar to that. Like no people in economics don't really. Yeah. Consider it. So I think it was intended to be both because Marx was an economist. So he tried to make like a coherent economic like interpretation. So I guess 
I guess maybe it's more fair to say it is originally just, but in the modern times it's viewed in the science of economics as not correct. Mm. Like a, a theory that's not correct. So you're saying it's not a political theory? Oh, it's, it's political. I would say it's all of the above. When it was created, it was all of the above. It was, phil- it was philosophical, political, and economic. And he was mm. sort of wrapped all that stuff together, mm. uh, which is part of perhaps part of the impact, right? It was so broad, yeah. you know, in its scope of what it was trying to like answer. Yeah. Okay. So, because uh, right now, in the currently, a lot of communist countries like China, Russia, and back in the day, they all have they they try to implement Marx's idea, right? But they always have a government that is like very like centralized, maybe one party and stuff like that. So, I guess my curiosity is that is it would it be possible in a parallel universe to implement like America, you know, still have a democratic government but uh, adopt the communist ideas would it be possible to implement communism in a democratic form in a way i was wondering yeah oh does it have to be like a central government like china or something well a central centralized government isn't necessarily not democratic Hmm. but i think the heart of what you're getting at is maybe like do you need can you implement socialism in a way that doesn't have like highly centralized control of everything is that kind of what you're saying i i guess right now because a lot of criticism about countries nice soviet union like usrr right in china too have a very authoritative government to try to implement communism but i was wondering would it be better to implement communism in a democratic government Mm. I, i mean i guess would that make communism work so for example now america right instead of we adopt free market or capitalism at the beginning if what happened in a universe what happened if like in benjamin franklin's day right when it started they had actually adopted communism right mm-hmm. i was i was wondering is that gonna is that gonna will that work yeah at least in theory there's not a conflict, which I, mm. there, I mean, there, so there are a lot of branches and ideas in socialism now, right? And they range mm. from people who are basically anarchists, like you should have no government, mm. all the way to people who basically support authoritarian regimes, planning everything. And, um, I mean, I don't think there's anything in, in theory that inherently conflicts, right? In, in theory, you could have people democratically vote for parties that agree socialism is what you want to do. And we could have laws or regulations or whatever that, force that as the economic model um mm. changing you know what property rights are protected by the police and stuff like that in practice like it's never been able to last anywhere without an authoritarian government mm. it seems because i mean like to to get rid of like to not allow someone to make their own business right and sell mm-hmm. things like that's a very strong like there's a very strong rules and regulations, right? So like how, like when you start thinking about it in a practical, so if someone has their own stand where they sell things, you know, they're fine because they're the one worker. But like once they have hire one more employee, like that person becomes 50% part owner. Like when you get into the details, there's a lot of just enforcement of laws and regulations that, you know, is required, which is why I think you see this tendency towards authoritarian regimes whenever this is actually done. Mm. Yeah, because 
because a lot of times the policy you need to ref- if you get you need people are going to vote for you right a lot of times people are not going to vote for you right if you need to get a consent from the from the people in a way yeah. yeah and i mean in the end like you could argue maybe if things started differently could they have evolved differently i don't know mm-hmm. but like right now if you in the real world if you ever want to get to that point you have to seize all the property that people already own right all the private mm-hmm. capitalist or capital, right, has to be seized. And so if you're going to go around seizing a bunch of property in the name of the government, that's probably going to be a somewhat authoritarian regime, mm. right? Prob- you're going to need a bit large police or military state to actually go around doing that, yeah. which is... Did yeah. Marx advocate any kind of, any form of government? Because like, back in the day, I think he was more like, uh, I'm not sure, like, did he advocate any kind of form of government? Like Democrat or like monarchy <laughs> I don't know, definitely not monarchy i feel like i remember reading about him criticizing democracy uh, but i don't remember the details uh, i was i was you know brushing up on some of the stuff beforehand but that's one thing I interesting didn't he, i don't think it was a big focus yeah of gotcha. like like how the government you know should be implemented it definitely wasn't one of his main focuses um mm. there might be some someone who's I'm very upset. Like, oh my gosh, he doesn't even know what Mark said about this. But okay, again, if you think I've done a bad job explaining this, please come on and tell me how I'm wrong. It'd be very fun. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why I'm curious. Night was it was Marxism a political night theory or night economic mostly? You know, stuff like that. So yeah, it was so, more yeah. economic and philosophical. Mm-hmm. I would say first and foremost, mm-hmm. but it was political as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Someone My, with no background, I feel like it's mostly political political now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe now. Yeah, going back to political, actually, my last question is, like, why Americans are so afraid of communists? I feel like communism, because I feel like a lot of times like, when I hear people, like, especially on the left, on the right, right, conservatives, they're always like, like freaking out about communists like taking over of some place and stuff like that. I was like, I, this is just my impression of American people, and they seem to be very afraid of communism. Yeah. Uh, you know, honestly, I'm not sure, because the thing about that is almost all the people on the right who freak out about it don't know what it is. Mm. Like, I've talked to people like this, and then I'll be like, what is socialism? And they either can't give me any answer or they give me something wacky. Mm. And they'll be like, Sweden's socialist. Sweden's not socialist. They have a capitalist economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even if Sweden is a socialist, they have, is, a, is really not a bad example, right? Sweden is a very friendly country to Americans. <laughs> so, so there was that red scare, right? Back yeah. in the day, where there was like yeah. sort of a very much like a, you could call it propaganda effort against socialism and communism mm. and i think that kind of combined with the real re- reality of history that communist states have repeatedly failed and we've seen like mm. massive human you know suffering and human rights violations out of these places so i think you combine a little bit of truth with some fiction you know and this kind of gets they get wrapped up in this like this is the worst thing ever. I mean, I don't like I don't like it either, right? I think that's pretty obvious. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's a system that works. Um, so in a sense, I'm I think it's bad as well. But I'm not. I don't know the people who are like crazy terrified of it. They don't seem to. Yeah, yeah. But I to be know. yeah, to be fair, I think a lot of people associated with the authoritarian country like China and like, USSR, right? USSR, Cuba. right? 
Yeah, they just they just associate okay, that's communism country, so communism is bad, right? So we we mm-hmm. which kind of it's kind of fair because I remember going back to my China days again, elementary school. I was reading like they were teaching it in in schools, right? And then I remember reading a passage about Western imperialists, you know, they are you know the capitalists, you know, they are our enemy and stuff like that. I think that's my impression of like I was like literally being brainwashed thinking back right so i, I was reading reading the history right in the history book i was reading about eventually the the whole night whole world is going to become communism in a way so the you know, enemy out of and the west and stuff like that anyway i don't remember the details but some that i remember some of the stuff that i was reading like you know enemies so yeah so i guess so yeah i'm saying that i guess the the china the communist country try to cast western nations as Enemy, so that's I don't blame like American like Westerners, you know, being like you know antagonized with uh, the you know communism. Right? I mean, that's what the Red Scare was about from the Western side, right? They were worried that the USSR yeah. and China would continue to like spread communism and it would take over the world and like fight, you know. So there was that fear back in the time day before, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed and whatever. And, uh, yeah. and I think, yeah. yeah, that's some of that's kind of continued now, but now it's crazy because the people will be like, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris are secret communists. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like w- give one policy that they support that is anything in any way implementing socialism. It's funny because like basically you have liberals in the democratic party gets called socialist and then both them and the actual socialists who, you know, leftists get pissed off because Liberals are like, we're not, you know, socialists. We like capitalism. And then leftists are like, you fucking calling those liberals socialists. Like, that's not what socialism is. Uh, yeah. But a lot of people on the right just don't care. They're just like, no, this is the same thing. Paying, you yeah. know, using tax money to help poor people is exactly the same as seizing all the means of production and guillotining business owners. Like, there's no difference. Every group has an us versus them mentality to help like help like what's the word i want to yeah. use here like label help. them right well well yes i mean like la- well so it's i mean you want to create like an us versus you know them that's scary and going to destroy our way to create yeah. like a tighter knit group right like to create cohesion mm. that's what i want yeah so like mm. i mean at the like literally the brain the way it like wires itself is like based on like to some degree on like us versus them like so mm. i mean it 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 makes sense that these groups because like i i think there's even there are movement studies that i need to look into before i stray too far down this road but you know basically that say like people bond together like better when they have a common enemy than when they are just like Is having two enemies too much like it's too hard for people's <laughs> brains maybe i mean i i guess you know i mean i guess uh i I, that's that's interesting actually like i wonder if it is better like if it's like us versus person b and person c is that is it better just to find some like even if it's tenuous like connection between b and c and just say those people like is that a better means of like creating like like dutiful like people i can depend on essentially like, Maybe but, if you acknowledge like there's multiple other independent groups of like ideologies that 
that kind of implicitly, like, I feel like that suggests that there's more nuance to the topic inherently, right? Right. It fractures, it fractures the thinking and it almost creates fear about complexity versus fear of the other. Yeah. Mm. Rather than just being like, there's evil, dumb, people are either evil or dumb. And that's like, that's the other group, right? Right, right. Sounds like a perfect uh, topic for next time or future, right? So maybe you can look into it and decide a topic on that. Maybe it sounds like a very interesting topic to delve into. Yeah, no, I can look Cause, at cause it. Because I think I feel like we brought it up all the time, like talking about why people believe in this and then why people call the other side that. Tribalism. Tribalism and populism. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Is this on mic to read some books on it then? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Because I'll probably look at it a little bit more science y than Mm. maybe you'd like. But like, because I'm curious about what in the brain structure lends itself to. Exactly. So, okay. Hold on. I'd like to say real quick though Mm. if any Republicans or right wing people were mad about what I said about them. They are also welcome to come onto this podcast and tell me how I'm wrong. Uh, if someone was spending this whole time being like, yeah, these fucking liberals and their socialism are dumb. And then they're like, oh shit, you know, I come will, on. If, if that person argues, I will also say an unfortunate number of leftists, mostly leftists. I don't think liberals do it as much, but call the entire like right, like, conservative group like nazis oh yeah that is probably also unfair i would yeah it's not just a right-wing problem in terms of just grouping disparate things into one other to view as an enemy Uh, Mm. but sorry i interrupted you shit what are you gonna say oh then that's good i think then let's let's just try to bring this conversation to the end and then i think next time i want to talk about uh lee kuan yu do you know who that is? I have no idea. No Googling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going on Google. We just need a. Do we just need to listen to you next time, or are we allowed to Google before the podcast? No, let's, let's end this right now. We're just going to talk about... I'm going to bring it out next time. Yeah. Okay. The is Founding there... Father of Singapore. Oh, yeah. no, spoiler alert. Oh, yeah. man. Okay. Yeah. Well, All right. I won't look anything else up. You can tell me about the history yeah, he, of Singapore. Yeah, he, he's really very admired by a lot of nice startup. CEOs like even Charlie Munger, you know, the right hand man of like uh, Warren Buffett, like Charlie Munger. He's really like he really like his ideas. And then anyway, yeah. So yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'll I'll be interested to learn. So, is there anything else before I take us offline? Oh, I feel like I said plenty. Everything I could have wanted to. Yeah, I think I think one. I guess I would just want to say that Marx is Mark, Karl Marx. He's more like a theory, right? He just come out with a theory. It might not, might not work, but he did not really test it out, right? So a lot of people tested it out, and then they implement the way they implement it is might not be because I mean implementing a, a something for a government or a country is really hard, right? So communism might still work. The theory might still work. It's fine, but it did not. I guess people need to, I guess, experiment with it, maybe change it, adapt to its own country or something like that, right? So, mm-hmm. so yeah. Maybe. Perhaps, I don't know. Yeah. perhaps once technology advances so that we're in a post-scarcity society, right? Like, yeah. we have all needs and wants are met via robots and super AIs. 
maybe we either can then transition or we'll just naturally transition to something like that. It's possible, right? Yeah. Um, oh, but did, I don't... did Mark say? Did Mark say that? Like, did he say that like, you need? Oh, okay. No, okay. He, I think under his mind, he saw the massive increase in productivity and wealth generated by capitalism and the industrial revolution. And I think he thought, oh, now we've gone far enough that like we can do this, but maybe we mm. need to like have the economy and technology evolve again and you get something mm. more in line. It's possible. Mm. So there's a sense that maybe the foundation of communism, you need to have some kind of like capitalism first, make the country really develop and then you maybe you can transition when people Marx, become more like socialists. Yeah. Marx basically said that explicitly. Like it's not a sense. Uh, like he, he thought of as capitalism, capitalism as a useful and critical step in development of like a country. Mm. And oh, again, okay. For his criticisms, he praised capitalism for the increase in productivity and raising the standards of living mm. because, you know, it did. Um, he just yeah. thought we could do better. Yeah. I, I think I re- this reminds me of criticism of like, a lot of young people nowadays when they're growing up, right? They, they, they start to hate capitalism, right? And they try to become more globalism. Right? We need to help the other people in other country, right? Everybody, you know, stuff like that. So a lot of young people became like, more getting into these liberal ideas, became more like socialist, socialism. But however, they forgot that. I think, I think it's one of the criticism. They forgot that actually, no, 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 no. They are able to do that, like to help the other people like, in other countries and stuff like that. It's because of capitalism, right? The capitalism enable them to able to have these ideas, like the luxury to do that, I guess. <laughs> right. Now, some people would say it's not capitalism, but imperialism that made the West and rich. That's um, what China say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that bears out when you look at, you know, all countries, but you know, there are people who will argue that because if you just take on face value, if you take the mm-hmm. success of capitalism, it's very hard to argue uh, for socialism. But if you say, oh, they're only rich because of imperialism, not capitalism, then you say, oh, maybe it's not such a good idea after all. But that's a whole mm-hmm. different topic, which we're not going to get into right now. <laughs> yeah. All right. So all right. next week, uh, same time. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. And the so and the founder of Singapore. Yeah. All right. Three p.m. Um, next Friday. All right. Three p.m. next Friday. I am. We are no longer live. Shinto Club.